Praise Jesus. Let's take one more time to pray. Lord Almighty, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to stand before your word. I pray that, God, you would enable us to hear what you have to say. And, Lord, speak to us so that we can be more and more the men and women of God that you have created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I meant to say a moment ago, I'm sorry, there's no electronics behind me today, but I did want to assure you that churches have existed before that didn't have PowerPoint. (laughs) Really, I'm not kidding. It it has happened before. So, um, yeah. So if you need to say an extra prayer for me now, then that, that would be great. One of the most important problems for the theist, one of the biggest questions that face those of us who believe in God is the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, how do we get evil? Now, the problem is not a logical problem. As a matter of fact, Christian philosophers have done a lot of work on this, and if you're interested, a guy named Alvin Plantinga solved the problem, the logical problem of evil. And if you're interested, I could share a good book with you. The problem is also not a scientific problem, although it is often couched like that, because science per se leaves no room for moral questions like good versus evil. It's not intended to answer moral questions. It's meant to answer questions about how much and how far and where and how fast. That's what science answers, not whether there is good or evil. But there is a problem of evil. It's an experiential problem. And it's a problem that all of us face. We come face to face with evil every single day. Not only that, but there are many who come so close to evil as to be scarred for their entire lives. Indeed, in the face of both the quantity and the quality of evil in this world, we are left speechless like the prophet Habakkuk, where after God gives him his first answer that we discussed last week, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me. Habakkuk is stunned. He is appalled at the problem that he is facing and the fact that God is going to judge his people, but he's going to do so in a way that the prophet did not expect. All of this we covered last week. And this week, although Habakkuk doesn't deal directly with the problem of evil, he instead deals with a related question. And that related question is, okay, given the existence of evil, given the problem that bad things happen day in and day out, how is it that this all-powerful and all-good God uses evil? If God isn't sinning, if God isn't 
the author of evil, how can he incorporate the evil that you and I, frankly, but everyone does to bring about that which is ultimately good for those who trust him and who are called according to his purposes? Because ultimately, that's what we have to say happens. If there is evil in the world, and obviously there is, how does God use that evil? And the answer we find directly relates to what we alluded to last week, and that is the kingdom of God. Now, the phrase kingdom of God does not occur in Habakkuk, but the idea that God is in control of the affairs of mankind is found throughout the book of Habakkuk as, as a whole and is definitely visible in our passage today. How does evil relate to the kingdom of God? Ultimately, it relates to it by being stamped out in God's own way and in God's own time. He will give justice for every injustice. He will pour out the undeniable truth for every lie. God will assure in the end that all the scales are even. Furthermore, how does evil relate to the kingdom of God? Evil does not catch God napping. God will use the wicked deeds of human beings to show the folly, the absurdity of relying on our own little petty schemes, trusting in what I can do, and he will show the wisdom of trusting the promises of God for you in Christ Jesus. And this is why, this is where we get our theme for today. This is why you and I must live in God's kingdom by faith. I gave you some notes as you walked in. You can scribble them down if you like. But let's start by reading our passage from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the one who by faith is righteous shall live. We find here, what we find here is that God promises Habakkuk to answer his complaints that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. And he tells us in this answer here, this short answer that's going to continue on, encompasses the judgment that he promises against those who are puffed up, those whose pride is pushing them away from God. And two things of significance stand out in our passage. The first, first of all, we see that Habakkuk stands in what I'm calling expectant submission. Habakkuk stands in expectant submission to 
the Lord. And secondly, we find that though God's judgment might delay, it may not come as quickly as we thought it would. And remember, we looked at that last week. It will not fail to take place. God will end all matters according to his justice. And so we learn three critical truths about history past, what has happened in the past, and what is going to happen in history to come. Number one, God is in control. There are no loose strings that he has to fumble around to catch. Number two, God has his own plans, he has his own means, and he has his own timetable. And I'm going to tell you a secret. None of you have probably ever figured this out yourself, but let me tell you a secret. His plans and his means and his timetable might not be the same as yours. I know that's a stretch. I know you're wondering, oh, Pastor Greg, are you, are you like pulling our legs here? It might not be how you want it. But number three, and this is, this is the foundational one, God is personally, intentionally, thoughtfully superintending that his kingdom purposes will not fail. And that is why you and I must live in God's kingdom by faith. Let's look at our passage. Verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. As I said a moment ago, this is what I'm calling expectant submission. Expectant because Habakkuk isn't simply sitting on his hands. Habakkuk isn't just asking God to rapture him out of all the troubles he's seen. Instead, Habakkuk is paying attention. He's looking around. He's trying to find God at work. And he wants to be aware when God shows him. I'm absolutely convinced that most of the time you and I don't see God at work because we walk around like this. Or we walk around like this, and we don't want to. We don't see God at work through us or through our annoying coworkers. We don't see God at work through all the honeydews and chores that we have at home. We don't see God at work in the traffic going slow. We don't see God at work because we're too focused on our own feelings, our own little plans, and our own little things that aren't working out. Anybody else ever feel like that? Lord, I do. And I said expectant submission because submission is that he is ordering his life under the commands of Scripture. And in this case, Habakkuk, the prophet, is calling people to repentance. But note, Habakkuk is kind of a strange prophet. He's not giving out, he's not throwing everywhere this message of turn or burn. Instead, Habakkuk is a much more introspective prophet. Habakkuk is much more interested in understanding God. Habakkuk wants to see what is going on in his own heart, and he wants to see what God is saying to him about his complaints so that he can then go and share it with the rest of us who are all, by the way, struggling with the same questions. 
It makes sense that Habakkuk would teach whomever would listen in the same manner, this same introspective, thoughtful manner. And furthermore, Habakkuk is submissive because he knows and obeys God's clear commands. And I just, I just pulled one out for us because there are 613 or something like that in the Old Testament. Here's one, Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Joey, someone ought to write a song about that. What do you think? Micah, or excuse me, Habakkuk is very interested in ordering his life as God would have him order it. Looking around, paying attention to see where God is moving and obeying what he asks of him to do. My friends, if it can be said of you and me by those who know us that we go around doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God, you can be absolutely sure that you are doing the same as Habakkuk and walking in this expectant, expectantly submissive. But we notice one other thing here in verse 1. Habakkuk had, remember, in chapter 1, complained or questioned, however you look at it, twice. And his thoughtful complaints were followed by God's answer, and this answer have led him to the point where Habakkuk accepts that God's answer will necessarily be bigger than he can imagine. Habakkuk realizes here in verse 1, God you are so far greater than I can even imagine that whatever your answer is going to be, it's going to blow my mind. And so I'm going to stand here. I'm going to wait. I'm going to listen. I'm going to pay attention because, Lord, whatever it is that you reveal to me, okay, I will submit. And that's how it's going to be because I want to arrange my life to you. This is the characteristic of what we're calling expectant submission. And Habakkuk is absolutely convinced that this is the right attitude. He knows this is the right attitude because he reasons from two absolutely rock-solid premises that are rightly related to one another. In other words, they follow the rules of logic. One is, God has made it clear that he is going to judge his people by an evil nation. God can use evil people and evil deeds and evil attitudes to bring about the correction of previous evil that has occurred, in this case, by national Israel. We don't like to think like that, though, do we? I don't like to think that my little petty evil, what I loved how Pastor Benji put it last week, my monochromatic evil being compared to someone else's technicolor evil, they're really bad stuff. I don't like to think that my sin could actually be found out and actually be taken care of. Oh, perish the thought, because I'm not nearly as bad as that person over there. But here we find out that God can use even the evil people to bring about his judgment. 
And B, the second premise in this logic is that God is perfectly loving and he is perfectly trustworthy. You know, when you have little kids and you tell your little child no, they can't conceive of why you wouldn't give them what you want. Don't you love me? Don't you want to give me what I want? Don't you want to give me that rat poison so I can eat it because that's what I'm really wanting to eat right now? And the answer is no. And you can pitch a fit if you want, but I'm not going to give you the rat poison. And God is perfectly loving. And if I'm asking him for rat poison, but I I don't understand, he's going to give me the loving answer, which is no. And I, based on God's word, based on my brothers and sisters who have walked with God before me, based upon my own experience, I can say he's trustworthy. If he says no, the answer is no to this request. I can know that God will not give me something that would be bad for me. And I will say, thank you, Jesus. Now notice, by the way, I didn't say I would like it all the time. So therefore, premise, or the point, third point, I can expect this judgment to come, Habakkuk is saying, that it will be good for those who trust him in the end. Don't be fooled. The Chaldeans coming to judge Israel that we're going to get to in three weeks is not good. It is not pleasant. It is all bad. But God in his greatness and his lovingness and his trustworthiness can use all bad for our good. My friends, never let anyone tell you that the Bible is illogical. God invented the rules of thinking clearly because they reflect eminently how he thinks. And he begs people to think hard about life, the universe, and everything. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And the question for you and me is where does this impressive heavenly logic weigh or need to impose itself on your thinking? The heavenly logic teaches us that God is in control and it teaches us that there is a point to our suffering. It teaches us that he has our good in mind. So where does that need to weigh on your thinking? Where do you need to stop feeling sorry for yourself and start saying, okay, God, this is a situation that I'm in. I will listen. I will obey. I will expectantly submit. Because the gospel is this, says Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we have ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Here's the point. Stop whining and start thanking. In your life and mine, there are plenty of reasons to whine. If we wanted to right now, we can have a great wine and cheese session and it would last a whole long time. And I know 
that many of you in this room have some legitimate pains and some legitimate evils that you have faced. And it's astounding. But start instead of whining what we talked about last week and creatively thinking about how I can present these to the Lord and start thanking him. And that rock solid heavenly logic will open our hearts and our minds to this remarkable, extravagant, amazing grace. And when this happens to Habakkuk, he abandons his complaints and instead he stops to wait on what the Lord will reveal to him. And oh my goodness, what a revelation Verse 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Now at first glance, this is simply appearing to say, Habakkuk, I want you to tell the people what I say and I want you to make it easy for them to understand. And that, of course, is true about this statement. But the crucial point to be gained here must be understood in light of the larger narrative of the entire Bible. One of the most important themes in the entire Bible is the theme of the kingdom of God. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that God is in control. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that God has his own plans, his own means, and his own timetables. And because you're not God, those means, ends, and timetables are not necessarily yours. And the Bible tells us thirdly, from beginning to end, that God is personally thoughtfully, intentionally, superintending, directing, forcing his kingdom and those purposes will not fail. I've said this before as we were going through Matthew several months ago. Dallas Willard says the kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done. The kingdom of God is where what God wants to happen actually happens. And so, when first of all, John the baptizer in Matthew 3.3, 3, and then Jesus in Matthew 4.17, and then Jesus' disciples in Matthew 10.7 start preaching the exact same message, which is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, when we see this three times in the book of Matthew, we find that the point is that you and I right now have available to us the power of God so that you and I can turn away from our old patterns of thoughts, our own patterns of desires, our own patterns of actions. And we can be a part of making what God wants done get done. Do you want to be a part of that? Do you want to see God working in you and through you so that what God wants done gets done in your life? So that what God wants done gets done in your family? So that what God wants done gets done in your community? Stand before him in this expectant submission. 
Say, Lord, I'm looking, I'm paying attention, I'm finding what it is you're asking me to do. And then do it. Submit your own desires and your own attitudes and your own actions to what you know God wants you to do. In his typical honesty, Mark Twain once said, I'm not bothered by the things in the Bible I don't understand. I'm bothered by the things in the Bible that I do. Because truth be known, there's, there are some difficult passages. I'm not, I'm not going to try to lie. There are some difficult passages. And if you go back to Pastor Benji or I and you open one of these up, we'll say, I don't know. But by and far and large, the Bible is perfectly clear on the vast majority of things. And, and we know that's true. So God reveals to Habakkuk in these two verses that God will get done what he wants done in the manner that he chooses and in the time frame that he chooses because God's kingdom is marching on. And the key application we take from this lesson is that waiting for the Lord is always the right thing to do because God's kingdom will not fail. Even when it appears that the forces of evil are expanding. Here's how the doctor and preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke about the kingdom of God when he was commenting on this exact passage. He said, the essential principle is that history can be understood only in terms of God's kingdom. He's talking about these verses. And he says, you're not going to understand these verses unless you understand them in terms of God's kingdom. That is, the rule of God in the world as a whole and including the church, which we're going to get back to that in a few weeks. All history is being directed by God in order to bring about his own purpose with respect to the kingdom, to bring his own purposes with respect to the kingdom to pass. Again, as I said, the kingdom of God is not specifically mentioned here at all, but the very basic presupposition, the foundational idea without which Habakkuk will make absolutely no sense is that all history is being directed by God in order to bring his own purposes to pass. You will not understand the book of Habakkuk. You will not understand the Bible at all all if you don't understand this idea that all history is being directed by God and therefore you and I can live in the kingdom by faith by trusting the promises of God we can live in the kingdom by faith and as I've this will be now the third week in a row that I've said this because this is true because this is true because God's word can be trusted. Christian, you have no reason to be afraid. There is nothing for you, there's nothing for me to fear. Come what five lawyers dressed in black robes may say, we don't have to be afraid. Come what any president or, call, or congress or parliament or prime minister come and say to the world. Come whatever any billionaire wants to say. You and I don't need to be afraid. 
We don't have to hide in our little Christian huddles making inane comments on Facebook and thinking that we're changing everybody's worldview by doing that. We don't have to be afraid of being shouted down by those who disagree with us. We don't have to be afraid because you and I can live in God's present power to get done what he wants done, done, and we do it by trusting the promises of God for us in Christ. And this is only one more step towards achieving our point found throughout Habakkuk as a whole that you and I can overcome our fears. We can overcome all the things that hold us back by rejoicing. By rejoicing. In the early 1930s, there was a young theology, theology professor, sorry, in the seminary in Berlin, who asked his students a question. He said, do you love Jesus? What kind of question is that? We're here to study theology. We're not here to talk about loving Jesus. His, many of his students were genuinely Frustrated by this, who's this young guy asking me questions like, do I love Jesus? Ask me about superlapsarianism. That's a good question. And this young professor had the gall while he was talking to his students and while he was talking to his fellow professors alike he referred to the Bible as the word of God. And what he meant by that is there really is a God who stands behind the Bible and that this God is alive and he might actually want to speak to us through the Bible. Could it be that there is a God who is uninterested in crowds of people singing and dancing and claiming to believe in him but are instead living by cheap grace? Cheap grace. Cheap grace is the opposite of expectant submission. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession, absolution without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Instead, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about costly grace. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. He continues, Bonhoeffer says, grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. Not the siren call of the world that says, obey your thirst. Not to everyone around you who is saying, be tolerant. Don't actually love people because that's kind of, you know, that's weird. But just be tolerant of people. Hold on just for a second. I'm going to start preaching now. <laughs> you ever think about what it means to be tolerant? 
You ever think about what it is the world is asking us to do? If love is here, what they're asking you to do is way down here. Because the tolerance that the world is calling you to right now is just this idea. Oh, you know, give everybody a hug and, and just be nice to each other. Don't, don't get involved in those other things. No! God calls us to expectant submission. He calls us to have wide eyes and look and see what he is doing. And he's calling us to submit, to recognize that he's calling us to follow him. Costly grace is what Habakkuk preached. Costly because he submitted to the commandments of God in his word and expectant because like Bonhoeffer, like what Bonhoeffer would say about Yahweh incarnate, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Not to look for new toys. Not to look for new circumstances or relationships. Habakkuk lived and evidently died like a man who lived through some of the most tumultuous times ever. And he did it by faith in the God whose kingdom spanned even the evil Babylonians. Likewise, Bonhoeffer lived and died fighting by faith against one of the greatest tyrants because he trusted the Lord of all tyrants. Likewise, you and me can live in the face of rampant evil. Whether you're a Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. We are living in evil times. And we can do so by faith in the God who is king over every parliament, over every Congress, over every Supreme Court. I need an amen for that. Come on, help me out here. Bonhoeffer faced execution for living in the kingdom by faith in ways that may or may not have been wise. But as he neared the time, he was sure that he would not, and as he neared the time, he was sure that he was soon to taste heavenly freedom. He wrote this. No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick. Are you homesick? Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. No one has yet believed this and not been homesick from that hour. Waiting and looking. Sound familiar? Habakkuk 2.1. Waiting and looking forward to being released from this bodily existence. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? This thing that we're afraid of. Who knows whether our human fear and anguish, in our human fear and anguish, we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly blessed event in the world. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous that we, our faith can transform even death. And that is why, my friends, you and I can live in God's kingdom by trusting the promises of God for us in Christ. Oh, Lord, we come to you because we are so weak. And, Lord, we face the troubles and the fears and the anxieties. And, Lord, we can't do it. And so we need your grace. We need you to pour on your spirit our souls so that we may live in this expectant submissive submission 
knowing that you are with us. Give us this grace this week and help us, Lord, to be those who live by faith in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.